Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today we have a special guest, Kurt from Relv Camo. Relv Camo. Did I yep. get that right? You got it right, man. So, uh, Kurt from Relv Camo, if, if you guys have been watching social media like philcraftsurvival.com or uh, philcraft on the uh, Instagram page, on the story we've been adding, um, you know, bits and pieces of the rap that we're doing with Relv Camo, of a special rap that, you know, we initiated really weeks or if not months ago and it's led us up to this point now where i'm in logan utah with kurt uh doing the actual rap and getting everything prepped uh for a video shoot that we're doing with travis hess and joey watanabe uh, on the way back um so you know this this podcast is going to be on uh camouflage because uh to be honest uh, you know kurt is a subject matter expert on camouflage He's got a special design. He's got a company that that specializes in it um, called Relv, and Relv is R E L V mm-hmm. um, camo. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Kurt. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. So, you know, let's first of all, let's you know the the podcast is on camouflage, and me and you have been flushing out um, some discussion on camouflage, mm-hmm. which has been interesting because up to the point in which we talked about it, you know, it's your realm and your genre. Um, we had some interesting conversations about camouflage yeah. and really, uh, <laughs> I had never even thought about it, but it's, it's crazy, uh, uh, how significant it's played in the military and, and the civilian sector, yeah. um, for everything else. So first of all, introduce yourself and then, uh, give us some background on how you got started in the okay. camouflage field. Yeah. So, um, I have two companies, so I give you a little history. My other company is North powder, northpowder.com. It's a creative agency. Relv started because I was approached to design a new camo pattern for a client and uh, turned out so well that we decided to start our own camouflage design. So my wife and I uh, owned the company. We came up with the name. It was actually her idea. The, the word Relv, people often ask if it's an acronym, but it's actually a word from the Estonian language, and it means weapon. Our tagline is weaponized camouflage. So... It was something that, uh, honestly, we found just just Googling uh, weapon translated into different languages. And she found Relv. Uh, at first, I uh, wasn't too sure about it, but we did some logo exploration, and the rest is history. Well, that's, re- that's real cool because uh, I didn't even know what it meant until you just mentioned it. And I know some of the conversation we were going to have is organic. And I was going to actually ask you about Relv. Um, when, it, when it comes to camouflage, what you know, you're a Utah boy. You grew yep. up. And Utah, you know, we talked about some of the stuff that you've been into from survival, yep. uh, cub and eagle scouts. Oh, yeah. Um, and just growing up <laughs> in the outdoors, ranching and farming and everything else. Yep. Why, why did you decide to get into the camouflage field? Yeah, so I've, I've, I've always been interested in camouflage. Um, didn't serve in the military. I served, uh, worked as a contractor, so I was close to it, but never, never uh, as a service member. But... Um, always been supportive and, and camouflage always intrigued me about how you guys would use it downrange. Um, also just, you know, being in contact with the hunting industry and seeing how obviously hunting applies to, to that, that crowd. Um, and then the rest is just, just being a, just being a fan of camouflage. I've just always thought it was cool. Um, never really thought about designing. I always kind of wanted to, didn't really know how to get into it until that first opportunity came. And then it just, my background in graphic design, it just made a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we talked about some of the historical points uh, for camouflage um, in my career in special operations. 
And some of the things that we talked about were were the transitions from camo to camo. Mm-hmm. And we talked about, um, you know, the battle dress uniform, which is the yep. woodland camouflage. Yep. M81. The M81. It, you know, what was the – it was the before that in Vietnam for the Army, it was OD green. Yeah, olive drab. Olive drab, right? Yep. And it was just a solid uh, olive drab uniform. Yep. Transition into the woodland camo, which we know we know I know is a battle dress uniform, yep. the BDU. Uh, and you know we did some research research yesterday. It started in 1981, correct? Up into the point that I, I believe Desert Storm, mm-hmm. we started needing the requirement for desert for desert camo, desert camo. So you get your chocolate chips, and yep, and then the, a three tone, the three tone. Okay, yep. And then it, and then we transitioned into really the the global war on terror. Yep. Um, initiated a whole bunch of different camouflage, um, even the debacle that we know is the ACU, which is you actually it's it's fascinating because I didn't even know I thought, you know, ACU stands for Army Combat Uniform, but I didn't even know that ACU was is not the name of the pattern. The pa- name of the pattern is uh, Universal UC, UCP, right? Yep. Which stands for what? Universal. Uh, com- let's see, Universal Camouflage Pattern. Universal Universal Camouflage Pattern, and then you you said there was like a ACU Pat or whatever, or it yeah, was referred AC, to as the yeah ACU Pat um, Digicam. AC. Digicam was uh, probably more popular. Yeah, people referred to it. And it, you know, I, I I often think about the ACU, and it's like the um, it's a hard lesson learned for the military, especially for the army, mm-hmm. and the fact that it went through is probably because it was the lowest bidder. Mm-hmm. Probably because I would it, imagine. Yeah. And, you know, some generals high-fived on that because I, I heard in my community at the time that it was a, basically a drug deal between <laughs> boys, you know, the one boy hooking up his, his buddy uh, to get the deal, but who knows. I know that, you know, in Afghanistan I used that pattern in 2005, and it was the most horrible pattern I've ever seen because in northeast Afghanistan, when we got issued it, we were forced to wear it. And it didn't blend into any environment. It was green. It, it was, yeah. It, and we were, you know, we were masked on ridgelines that looked like Swiss Alps. It mm-hmm. was trees. It was green. And then it, it stood out. And then the, the boys in the, the uh, southeast corridor of Afghanistan on the border of, of Pakistan were in desert. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't blend into anything. Yep. I think, you know, right there, that period of time, there was a push for, and coming out of the Desert Storm era, a push for digital camel. And I think people were really sold on the fact that as you're looking through night optics and images are pixelated, you know, it made sense to have these, you know, pixelated um, fractals in the camo pattern. But, well, the um, Marines, the Marines were doing it, right? The yeah, Marines were... With Marpat. Yeah, Marpat. Yeah, that came later. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there were even some initial prototype uh, camouflage patterns that came out of Desert Storm. You know, yeah. that kind of, kind of evolved into what we knew as the UCP. Yeah. So... I... I uh, I always respected the Marine Corps in the sense that um, one, they had a, a, a they have an awesome lineage, obviously mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. but they always stuck to the the patterns that made sense in combat. Mm-hmm. I almost felt like the ACU was this garrison uniform that they were trying to. I mean, same thing with the BDUs. I mean, yep. I remember, I remember wearing the BDUs in garrison, and in the regular army, and we would starch the crap out of them until we had these razor like. I mean, this is a garrison army, but this is before 9-11. But we had these starched lines. I don't even know what we call them. We'll call them. What are they? The, the, Just the pleat. Yeah, pleated. the pleat going down the, the pants. And then we'd pay, uh, you know, the sew shops and the dry cleaners yeah. to, 
to starch that put so much starch in the uniform, it was worthless in the field. Yep. So then you had your garrison uniform and your field uniform. It was okay. funny because you take a field uniform and you make it a garrison uniform by throwing starch on it. Yep. And then you take jungle boots and then you put uh, polish on them. Yep. And it was so bizarre to me. And then the Marine Corps, I think, was the first one when the GWAT started to pick up the fact that we're not polishing shoes anymore. Right. Uh, because we're a, a, a country at war. We're wearing, you know, whatever the felt type, suede type yep. boots. Yep. And every and I know I remember the being in the army being jealous that you know we had to do it. Yeah. Then when I it's, it's funny because when I went to third group, um, we are actually I remember we when we were authorized to wear desert boots mm-hmm. with BDU uniforms, mm-hmm. and everybody was freaking losing their mind because all the sergeant majors were like, "You got to be polishing your shoes." Yeah. And then eventually it got to the point where, we, you know, we didn't have to even starch them or doing it we, it was called fluff and buff basically yep. put them on the dryer yep flop them and then you could wear that uniform like that and then everybody who was in the garrison army at the time you know whose imperatives and priorities were uniform dress and appearance looked at us like we were shit bags <laughs> and started going started judging us but then yeah. it felt good because you felt like you're in the military right you're in the army right and then eventually it, it you know the acu came out where you didn't have to yeah put it through uh, the dry cleaning Yep. Which put up a lot of shops out of business in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Yep, and then, uh, uh, and then eventually it was a full battle rattle in ACUs. Right, which just a horrible uniform. Uh, terrible, horrible. So uh, you know, leading into you know sticking on the his- historical points points of it, um, you know the application of camouflage is just not for the soldier in the field. Right. It's actually, you know, it's relevant to vehicles, to platforms, yep. to, to all military type equipment. Um, when you set out to design the the uh, actual pattern that you have today, was it was it set in a parameter that is going to be specific to equipment? I, I remember we talked about a mission statement that you had. Yeah. What what was the what was so, the so thoughts? it's interesting because especially with the hunting crowd, there's a lot of discussion. Obviously, you're hunting an ungulate, deer, elk, whatever. There's been a ton of research. University of Georgia has a bunch of stuff. Um, there's another designer um, uh, that I respect highly in the industry um, who has done a ton of research on ungulate vision, what they see, how they see. What's the word? What's the term? Ungulate. Ungulate. So your deer, your elk. Yeah. How they see and how they perceive color. Right. Yeah. Yep. Light. Exactly. Light. Yep. Yep. So I read their research and like I said, I have a tremendous amount of respect for that. However, um, for me personally, I take my cues from Mother Nature. So as an artist, I'm I'm actually sampling from Mother Nature. So this is sage green. This is, you know, the the greens that I'm pulling off of Douglas fir. This is what I see. All in the natural hardwoods. colors. That's it. Yeah. Because I figure, and this is where I think um, other companies like Realtree, Mossy Oak, those kinds of companies who specialize in the realistic foliage and greenery, I think they do a great job. And um, and they're they're literally pulling from photographs yeah. or creating the artwork of the vegetation of the veg. Yeah. Yep. So I don't really, uh, Relv. At this point, we don't get into a tremendous amount of ungulate vision things like that. We're focused on camouflage that is just fresh, new fractals that people haven't seen before. I mean, you know, referring to the M eighty one. You and I grew up with the M eighty one. You know, the and woodland camo. Yeah. The woodland and every kid who grew up watching Rambo 
or A team knows what that, yeah. what that camo is. Um, you get a classic pattern, a fractal like that, and those colors that have worked in certain biomes for 40 years, 50 years, um, you, you know, you, you, you pay attention to that kind of thing. And so with RELV, what we're trying to do is we're creating new fractals that are fresh that apply to not only uh, tactical application, depending on the pattern, but also you've got your hunting guys, so you're going to have patterns like what we did for uh, Scree Gear out of St. George, Utah, with a summit pattern. Um, this is you know, designed specifically for high elevation above timberline hunting, and um, it worked out great. We, this was, uh, we can get into how we, how we designed that with Scree, that kind of thing. But, and then lastly um, is the lifestyle. You know, who doesn't like to wear camo? Yeah. So some of the patterns that we offer, um, Medusa, for example, started out as a lifestyle pattern. And what's been fun for us is it started out as a lifestyle pattern for the ladies. Every guy I've shown it to loves that fractal and loves that pattern. And it is the base pattern for the wrap that we're putting on your forerunner is Medusa. Nice. And it's a new colorway, you know, where we, we shift the colors to the greens, the tans, things like that. But it is Medusa at its core. Yeah. So it's just kind of funny what, what people will gravitate to when you have something that you design, you know, it's like, hey, this is going to be for the ladies for a jacket going out, you know, on the, on the town, date night, whatever, turns into a tactical or, a, you know, overland camo yeah. that the guys just totally dig. Yeah, so it's kind I, of fun how that evolves. I think it's cool how you used to be, a, or you used to be, you are a, an artist. You yep. know, you, you do graphic design, you do yep. brand work, right. you do drawings, you know, on your on your Instagram. What's, what's your Instagram, your personal Instagram? Instagram is just Kurt Little, C-U-R-T-L-I-D-D-L-E. Yeah, and how you do those drawings and, yeah. and mock everything up. And I think what's interesting is, you know, people don't realize that it takes an artist's hand. It's You have to be an artist in order to make camouflage nowadays. Right. You know, the application of taking a picture. Like, I remember in sniper school, you know, the, there's a craft, you know, this whole field craft yep. of taking the natural vegetation, vegetation and jute and tying it into your ghillie suit. Yep. And uh, I remember how arduous that process was it's, it's it's very difficult and it's technical and it's a beautiful thing it's you yeah. know it's artwork yep but i remember us taking the same thing from like a mossy oak you know a ghillie suit that we bought or right. a leaf suit that we bought yep from bass pro for like you know 50 bucks right and it was just as effective in the wood line as you know the the amount of hours that we spent yep but people don't realize how much work goes into creating an actual camouflage pattern. Oh man! I remember. Dude, I remember. This is like, this is like five years ago, and I was transitioning out of the military, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start my own camo pattern. Uh-huh. And my big thing was photography, and yep. so you know, I was like, I'm just going to take pictures, generate an image, and then lay that image over certain things. Right. And you know, I looked into the graphic design and artwork it, it takes, and it's super technical. Yeah. And you you were, you were explaining to me yesterday when we were looking at the wrap. Some of the technical aspects about the is it the width of how it's like laid out? Yeah, I know some of that stuff you can't talk about, but is there some of that stuff that you could? Yeah, describe? so so uh, our patterns, um, it's important that we that we can scale, and and being able to scale a fractal depending on the application. So, you know, we're doing these uh, mats, for example, the fractal is smaller, but if we do a vehicle, we'll often scale the fractal up. Yeah. And so the, you're taking the image and yeah. you're blowing it up and making it larger. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, yeah. Yep. And that typically, 
for a lot of companies, um, especially the stuff that's based on photography, you're limited to the pixel density of that image natively. Yeah. So in a you're nutshell, not using a you, point and shoot camera to get the capture no, this. No, no. It's like the best. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking major megapixel cameras. So what, what people run into when they have photography-based camo is they're limited to how large they can scale that fractal. And when you try and scale that fractal that's based on a pixel image, pixelated image, it starts to fragment at a certain size and just kind of blurs and it just becomes messy. The way we design is our, our fractals stay clean. You could wrap a 747 with our patterns and scale that fractal as big as you want and it's always going to be razor sharp. So it's just you know the way we're designing um, and our processes. The other thing to note is that a lot of... Uh, a lot of camo designers, um, they'll design at a 25-inch square pattern. And that, that 25 inches, it starts to tile. They'll just, they'll just create and replicate that same thing again and again yeah. and again. Yeah, and it just tiles across the surface. Yeah. For us, what we try and do is we, we, we try and create fractals that, that blend nicely. So when you're scaling that up... You're, you're so you're doing a larger truck. version of it. Yeah. You guys are like the two-minute abs, and they're like the three-minute abs. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that I've learned from the industry, and we are trying to improve on that. Yeah. I don't want to be just uh, – with RELV, we are, we're determined not to be just another camo design company. And I want to be clear about that. So, so just as a side note, RELV is not a camo company. We're not uh, in competition with Realtree, Masio, Cryptek, Kuyu. Multicam, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with, with Cable and the guys at, at Cry Precision, we are not in competition with them. We would love to design for all of them. And that's who we are at the core, is we are designers. We're camouflage designers. Yeah, because the difference is, you you know, you're, you're not doing it in, you're doing the design work. Yep. And people are, it's a license uh, uh, concept. That's correct. And so people could apply it to whatever, whatever yep. aesthetic, like I'm doing it into my wrap, to yep. my vehicle, because I do a lot of overlanding in Moab and Colorado, Utah. Yep. And we wanted it to blend to, to different environments. Right. Uh, there's an aesthetic appeal, obviously. Yep. But uh, you're not in competition with them as far as they're creating a brand or camo around a brand. Right. That's that they're selling. Yep. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you know when multicam. I can't remember exactly when multicam came out, but I remember there's a period of time in special operations, maybe '07. Well, it was kind of 06, 07, um, a, a transitional period within Joint Special Operations Command and uh, U.S. Army Special Operations Command where we were wearing some crazy stuff. Right. And this is – it's crazy because it was a weird transition period in between uh, the Woodland slash ACU, which by Special Operations Standard was garbage, yep. into what we know today as a multicam. Right. And – you know, there's the AOR one. There's we had the Digicam. Yep. Um, AOR two. AOR two. Marpat. Marpat. Yep. Um, and we were trying different things. I remember actually, I got pictures uh, of uh, on social media of me wearing the British yep uh, uniform, and then the Australian uniform. Yep. I even have a picture of me wearing. Uh, I think it's an Australian top with ACU bottoms. Okay. And just weird stuff because. Yep. None of the camo made sense for the operational environment that we were in. Mm -hmm. And when you were ACUs doing night operations, which typically we were doing, um, and, you're, and you're white, you're bleached white because we're doing combat ops every oh. night because they're washing the crap out of yeah. the uniforms. Yeah. 
uh, it gets dangerous. Yep. Because, I mean, bad guys are using ambient light to see where good guys are. Right. Um, Moonlight, streetlights. Exactly. And if you're if they have nods, if they have NVGs, which yep. some of them did, you're just a big glowing beam of light right. because all the light is reflecting off of you. Right. Or absorbing the light, and you, you just stand out. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you could get into a whole conversation about um, how light interacts with dye colors as well as fabric types. Yeah. So some patterns just blend better through nods hmm. than others. Well, that's, you know, I, that's an interesting thing because I never even thought about it. But I, I like the BDU primarily because of the actual uniform, mm-hmm. the material, which is almost like a type of ripstop, it's right? It's ripstop nylon, yep. Yep, the ripstop nylon where um, it lasted a long time. Mm-hmm. And then the colors didn't bleed. It faded, right? right. but they didn't uh, get to the point where it, is, it looked washed out. Well, and even in my opinion, the BDU, the M81 Woodland, when it was washed out, actually looked even better. Oh, yeah. Because you get a little bit of gray. Yep. Yeah. And, the, and they had the summer and then the winter weighted versions. Mm-hmm. And then the ACU, they just came out and they're like, ah, terrible. It, oh, it's, it's insane. <laughs> terrible. So, you know, we, we talked about a little bit about um, multicam. And, yep. you know, multicam, you know, Caleb Cry, yep. you know, started. Big fan. Big, I'm a big fan as well. I mean, uh, Caleb's. I've I've met the guy. I've hung out with him before. He's a really good guy, very supportive of special operations Absolutely. community. Yep. Um. And but multicam is has taken over the world. It's not just a a U.S. thing. It's yeah. it's a world thing. Yeah. Your our enemies are now wearing multicam. Yeah, and that's a, you know, that's a impactful statement. You know, right. I I I'm not controversial about that statement because it, it's a fact, right? right? Right. When I was in Libya in 2012. You know, training up a counterterrorism force, doing stuff with with uh, good guys, analyzing what bad guys were doing. Right. It, hell, you can Google it. I mm-hmm. mean, bad guys in Libya are wearing Marpat, multicam, and yep. a similar, you know, because they're, they're, that's their environment, but a similar type pattern. And something that, that stood out in our conversation yesterday about this is that the fact that part of camouflage is just not concealment. Right. Part of camouflage is PID or positively yep. identifying friend from foe. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, in, in conventional wars, when you had, you know, the Germans fighting the Americans, you could easily identify who the Germans were by their distinguished camouflage. Yeah. Um, and versus our distinguished camouflage. Right. Now, in a world where, you know, we're fighting an insurgency, where yep. anything goes, you're going to see a whole different spectrum of, uh, of camouflage on the battlefield. But it's something that they have ad- adopted um, most definitely. Yeah, and I think I think accessibility to those patterns has also changed. You know, so you've got a global marketplace, and you take for example the airsoft community. Um, the airsoft community they want to mill sim. They want to look like you guys downrange, which is great and it's a lot of fun as a sport. But what's interesting about that is you can get on any airsoft website and you can order. It may not be authentic AOR one, AOR two. Um, multi-cam, anything like that, but it's close enough that on a battlefield, it's going to be very difficult to distinguish. Is that a Navy SEAL or is that some, uh, you know, fighter who's ordered, literally ordered AOR-1 from an airsoft company out of China and it looks, it looks spot on. So the accessibility to that stuff, that whole, that whole thing has changed. You know, it used to be that, you know, you could keep things exclusive, but now you have a global marketplace and the second, um, you know, for me, it's only a matter of time before RELF camo patterns start 
popping up with bootleg, you know, Amazon stores and things, eBay, things like that. So it's always going to be, it's going to be um, a constant battle from here on out to stay ahead of that. The Army, my understanding is the Army is already looking, especially for the spec ops and tier one guys, um, they're already looking for another pattern to replace multicam because our enemies wear multicam. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's a, it's a real relevant point in the sense that, you know, a bad guy, bad, hell, bad guy tactics, techniques, and procedures has always been replicating yep. the good guys yep. to be able to infiltrate into good guy territory That's to right. be able to, to get the advantage, to get the foothold. Yep. And I've seen, I've literally seen it, I've been part of it where uh, Afghans have attacked our bases yep. with wearing ACUs, yep. dressed up, yep. so they can get by that first layer of perception and then it, when, by the time they're infiltrated, it's too late. Trojan and then, horse, man. Yeah, the Trojan tro horse method. And I, what I think is important to, to kind of define or narrate is the fact that there is no mo monopoly on camouflage. Right. And, the, you know, in, the, in a business sense, uh, in fact, in a tactical sense, tying to business, you wouldn't want there to be a monopoly Correct. on camouflage. Right. Because you want to diversify patterns. Yep. And to always change the perspective and the look yep. of how you're perceived on the battlefield, because you know camouflage is concealment. Right. You know it's it it, it dilutes your uh, signature in in certain environments. Yep. To give you, like you said, the Trojan horse, or to give you the ability to surreptitiously infiltrate or yep. stealthily infiltrate. And so, um, have you? Do you see or do you foresee as a business person in that field? Of any potential, like you say, like the 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 fact that somebody could replicate your pattern. Mm -hmm. How do you even combat that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's it's like playing whack a mole um, because we work with with offshore textile companies in Asia, and um, there is nothing to stop other than the integrity of the facility owners. Um, there's nothing to stop them from bootlegging out the back door. So the second a pattern arrives in China, for example, there's nothing that would would stop other than their own sense of, of integrity to, to keep from selling that right out the back door or literally manufacturing the bootlegged garments yeah. in the exact same facility. Is there, is that, I mean, is that a, is there a patent process behind protecting that? Yeah. So, so we have copyrights in place for our patterns. Uh, we work with, uh, legal teams overseas as well, but it still will pop up. And so at that point it literally becomes playing whack-a-mole where you're, you know, say for example, you see a, sh a store or product show up on Amazon or eBay. Amazon and eBay are two um, two companies that really work hard to protect this stuff. And if you notify them and say, "Hey, this is a bootleg product, crush it," they will shut them down. But then another one pops up, and another one. So you you literally keep your your legal team busy just crushing these guys constantly. But what is the like? What are the tolerances? Because, you know, it's a pattern is a pattern, right? So right. what's the tolerances in the replication? Could they change one specific point of pattern and then, it, you know, it's good to go? Or how does it, that work? It really comes down to um, just a judge basically in a legal proceeding determining what is too close to your pattern. Like, for example, um, it's a pain. It's a gauntlet that you've got to run when you submit a pattern to be reviewed for copyright it's a long process where these attorneys and legal folks will evaluate a pattern and determine, is it too close to their competition? And if so, they'll kick it back. Um, just this last year, we, we still have two patterns that we've submitted that we're still waiting for copyrights. Um, so we, we haven't made those public. 
obviously, because we want to protect them. But our patterns that are currently out are copyright protected by U.S. law, and we're working to, to uh, finish that up on the international so side. So it's a copyright. So copyright applies to the, the artwork. A uh, trademark applies to us as a company. Okay. Yeah, so our trademark is RELV Camo, and our copyrights are for Medusa, Dino Hyde, you know, and on down the line. So how many, how many different packs, because we talked about the, the uh, color schemes that you change. And right. you use a term, what's the term? Colorway. Colorway. Yep. And so how many patterns do you have? So, so we have 33 that are separate fractals. Those are the shapes that make up the pattern. Yeah. Then your colorway comes in. And what's cool about the way we Wait, so you design. have 33 different yeah. th uh, schematics or yeah. of design? Yeah, wow, that you've never crazy. even seen. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so right now we have 33, um, and I'm constantly developing new ones. And then what we do is, say, for example, you come in, you're like, hey, I want a new camo pattern for my line of backpacks. We sit down with you, and you basically select from our existing fractals. And you're like, I like that fractal but I don't really like the colors. I mean, you, you actually went through this process with me a couple weeks ago. So with you, you came back and you wanted Medusa. So we started with Medusa and we took what starts out as a black and white fractal and, and colorway. And we modified it, brought in a new colorway, which is what we ended up with on your, on your rig. So it's part of the way that I work is I want to work with a client. I want to start at that launch point. So let me give you a quick example. Scree, uh, Scree gear out of Utah. We, uh, we, they were the guys that approached us to design a new pattern for them. And um, so we, we took the opportunity and we worked with them closely. And basically what, the way I do it is we work over Skype and basically the client can see what's happening on my screen. And so we make modifications to the pattern until the client is satisfied. We get the colors dialed in, we get the fractal dialed in, and then they've got what they want. And we license that out and uh, work with them on Basically, it's a royalty basis. The application of what they're using it in? Yeah. So for them, it's clothing and backpacks, things like that. And so... Um, Wait, so they... you Do they collect the royalty or you... So, yeah. we So we it depends on the textile manufacturing plant. Um, basically, the way we typically work is we get the money from the, the customer who, who licenses the pattern. So, for example, um, if you order, you know, 70,000 yards of fabric from a, a factory we work with you on that and uh and determine how many you know what percentage is equates to the license fee Got and that's it. the way it works so yeah <clears throat> so for us is we work out in a, camo everything's licensing right or yeah typically yeah so, and you work out a dollar amount per yard of fabric is typically how it goes for textiles okay and it can apply to kydex or plastic whatever yeah know, whatever so that's actually a different model and Glad you brought it up. So we so for the Kydex that we're doing, that's that royalty comes on a sheet basis. So different Kydex manufacturers have different dimensions on the sheets. And so certain sheet sizes, there's a, a percentage that comes back to us as a as basically the license. It's a okay. royalty. Yeah, and that's something that we have in the works too, because we're we're doing a yep. EDC line, so we're we're setting up everything in the set pattern, the same pattern that's on uh, my vehicle. Yeah. That's right. Um, which is unnamed. We haven't named it We haven't it named it yet. Which is kind of cool. Um, <laughs> but that set pattern is going to be in some new uh, equipment that we're doing for the Overland community. But so, some also stuff, some stuff that we're doing uh, in talks with local guys yep. 
uh, of doing some um, kit stuff in plastic and Kydex. Right. Which is very interesting because, you know, that line, you know, when you're carrying a concealed holster, you don't necessarily have to be, it doesn't have to, it could be black, it could be, it could be any material. Right. But I think it's an added benefit uh, aesthetically to add the camouflage yeah. into it. Because you never know where you're going to be at, sure. at what point. Why, if you have the opportunity to camouflage it, why not? <laughs> well, and, and to your point on the aesthetic, I mean, people just love camo. Yeah. You know, um, Medusa is black and gray and people just love it. And it's really more of a, a lifestyle camo. Yeah. Um, so whether it's on your Kydex holster or the jacket that you're wearing to the ball game, you know, it's whatever. Yeah. So, I think it's really cool. Yeah. So what, what do you see the feature in, in rough camo, um, you know, moving forward. So it's been, I'm glad you asked because um, we've only, we've really been in business uh, essentially, this is our first year, probably less than that in terms of months in business, but it's just blowing up. And so <laughs> where's it going to go? Sky's the limit. You know, right now our business model is we are designers. And so we want to work with manufacturing to license these patterns and make cool gear. I'd like so, to see it, dude. I'd like to see it in a, uh, a ripstop nylon like sniper uniform. Yep. And I got buddies at the, the sniper schoolhouse who were instructors, mm -hmm. getting them some of them to, to wear and to, to test in the field. I That'd mean, me great. and Kurt, actually, me and, it's weird. I mean, me and Kurt, if you're in special operations, you R&D equipment for a living. I mean, that's right. what you do, uh, especially kit and guns. But uh, we both have tested and evaluated different types of camo mm -hmm. in the field, mm -hmm. uh, in the schoolhouse and in combat. Mm -hmm. And I think it'd be cool to get some of those patterns uh, especially that are relevant to the woodland uh, areas right. in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where Special Operations is at, and also downrange in combat yeah. in Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq where we're fighting. Um, I think it'd be cool to see that on the battlefield. So, Well, we may be closer to that than, than we realize. We, uh, we're working with some textile companies right now, and I know that you've got some contacts as well that you guys are kind of in talks yeah. So th that it's amazing how fast that stuff can come together. Yeah. Um, we we reached out to a few clothing manufacturers here in the states and uh, showed them our patterns and immediately. I mean, the first question was, "Can I get fabric?" Uh, one guy uh, flat out told me, he "said I'll build I'll build clothing today" because he wanted a particular pattern. Nice. Um, I didn't have it at the time, so immediately I got on the phone and started sourcing sourcing your fabric. Yes. Yep. yep. How, how, man, that seems so. The fabric guys, I mean, you're spooling, they're spooling this fabric up in huge rolls of yeah. whatever material. Yep. Because the benefit is if you have a sourced manufacturer or sourced fabric guy where a manufacturer can source that fabric, then the sky's the limit. Yep. You can create and do anything you want. Yep. Do you have just a business question? Do you have to prepay for all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. It, and it depends on who you work with and it depends on how much you order. Yeah. Um, it also depends on how popular the pattern is. I mean, if you can come to a manufacturer and show that, you know, this pattern is, you know, there's that, you know, 100,000 people who follow us on Instagram. And they love this stuff. And you've got lists and lists of people who comment, I will buy that. Where can I buy that? Yeah. I mean, the first night that we launched, that we went live with Relv, uh, relvcamo.com. <laughs> my, my social media and my, my phone and my email just blew up. Nice. Of people going, dude, I didn't know you were doing this. Um, where can I get it? And, you know, we started to, it was right at the middle of uh, the fall hunt. So a lot of guys saw the patterns that we were producing. They wanted to wear it. Yeah. You know, they thought that they could run out to Cabela's or it was a, maybe a direct-to-consumer model where they could get on the website and, and purchase this stuff. Um, 
obviously that wasn't our business model at the time. It was just, we were launching this. We wanted the word to get out. And, um, so I think some guys were like, Oh dang, you know, I would have ordered that up tonight for my hunt, whatever. But then we, we launched, um, you know, we saw the Scree gear launch with summit. Um, and that's been pretty exciting because you know, that from what I'm told by their sales guys, that pattern's outselling their other pattern four to one. So for us, that's a huge success story because that was our first out officially into apparel working with Scree gear to get their new summit pattern in place Yeah, and they're crushing it. So for us, it's just been a boon and kind of that springboard into, into other, uh, uh, gear and of course the vehicle wraps, things like that. Um, some of the cool stuff that we're also doing is our scuba and our freediving wetsuit lineup Ooh. and seeing all of our patterns on, on these different wetsuits, things like that. So Talking about spear suits. gunners and yeah, yeah. spear fishermen. Yeah. So all the, the spear gun community. Are you know, working with DJ Strunz? Yeah. So DJ yeah. is actually, um, a guy that I met over social media. Yeah. Um, and a couple other guys that I've met who spearfish both as hobbyists and as professionals. And they've seen our stuff, and they're helping me push it. You know, they he love hooked me up with that, my Rife gun, which is an <laughs> expensive gun. Yeah, yeah, it and, is. And um, you need to make those for me in like uh, XXXL. Like a big, <laughs> I look yep. like a manatee in the water. But yep. I, I'd love to. Because it's funny because that market, those guys are wearing yep. really cool camouflage yep. wetsuits. They are. Because you have to wear a wetsuit in that, those environments. I yep. mean, you have to be able to, depending on what uh, the temperature and everything else, but most of those guys are wetsuited out. Right. And I think, dude, that's a cool app. There's some cool social media yeah. things on that too. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, uh, if you go to our, our Instagram, just at Relv Camo, you can see our, our wetsuit lineup and check out the patterns. And of course, Medusa is right at the tip of the spear. Everybody loves. Well, it's just a cool name Medusa. too. Yeah. It's a cool name. What, yeah. So, you know, transition a little bit out of camo. We had conversations about some survival stuff because, yeah. you know, you grew up here in Utah, which is rural, obviously. And yeah. You grow up here and you're, you're ranching, you're farming, yep. you're, you're in agriculture, you're doing something, you're right. hunting. Yep. Um, you know, what, what, how did you get into survival that we talked about? Like, how did you become interested in, in all that, that, the whole genre? Yeah. So just as a kid, um, you know, I was constantly in the mountains and, uh, I grew up in the scouting program um, I don't think the BSA, I'm not so sure that the BSA is what it used to be, but when I was going through it, we had great leadership and um, some men who I still am in contact with today who were mentors to me, uh, taught me skills, taught me how to read the land, taught me how to survive, um, took a snow caving, taught us how to build shelters, build fire. And I love that. And it's been with me my whole life. You know, my, I've got a teenage son who, from the time he was little, has been going to the mountains with me. And I would seriously, you know, and somebody's going to call me out on this, but I would seriously put my 16-year-old son up against grown men in the wild. And I'm pretty confident my kid can hold his own. That's awesome. Um, he's, you know, so I, I guess some of it is also a family tradition. My brother and I, I've got a kid brother who is every bit the outdoorsman that I am and, and uh, a marksman. Um, so, yeah, it was just kind of something that we grew up doing. Um, and I guess I just never grew out of it. Yeah. That'd be the best way to. Well, I, I have a, like a, a secret confession. I, I actually wanted to start and revamp the Boy Scouts of America into a, a new, I even looked at Philcraft. I was like, how can I, 
how can I redefine a program? Yeah. That's, you know, a nonprofit based program that teaches, you know, in the modern era of technology. Right. uh, You know, there has to be some kind of uh, integration where, where you kind of make it fun and more open and exposed to do things that kids nowadays would be, would be intimidated to do. Yeah. Or not just intimidated. They just don't want to do it. Like you tell a kid nowadays, Hey, we're going to go camping right. and we're going to start a fire and then we're going to go, uh, you know, hunt small game. And right. they, they would, they would be like, no, nah, I got a call to duty part, call of duty party. Land this party. Weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's just something that's not even in the psyche of a lot of these kids. Cause they grow up yeah. on technology, video games, social media, and to get them to even go outside is difficult. So you yeah. know, there's, I, I, I fantasize about a program that just, you know, whether it's an it's app based, it just gives these kids maybe the the inlet right. where they get turned on to it um, via technology, and then they apply it, uh, you know, with physically in the wood line or and in an experience, you know. Yeah, so it, it's it's interesting because I I was a adult volunteer leader uh, in the scouting program. I think I've got a total of fifteen years uh, all up, um, diff- living at different places and just volunteering, teaching the boys. And it's interesting because part of my career, I, I made video games for Electronic Arts. I was an art director for them. And I was an art director That's for Microsoft. That's crazy. I just think for yeah. Madden, right? Yeah, you I was an art, yeah, I was an art director on Madden football when I lived in Florida. <laughs> and so, so I've seen both sides of it. I've yeah. seen how we craft video games to addict people to want to play more. And, you know, secretly I always kind of had a problem with that because I've got a teenage son. And I would prefer him out in the woods or on his horse on the ranch um, developing that way. Um, It's interesting also because I got recruited. uh, I had the opportunity to leave Microsoft Gaming and go work for a a military contractor. And I was there for four years. um, And one of my first projects was developing a compass simulator for Fort Benning to help these guys learn to use a compass. And it was just kind of funny because at the time I was a scoutmaster in the Seattle area. And so every Tuesday night I'm teaching 12 to 18 year old boys how to do exactly that. Only we're out there in the woods with a lensatic compass shooting an azimuth, you know, doing it for real and teaching these guys how to read the land, read a topo map, things like that. And then at work I'm building for the iPad, I'm building, you know, this compass simulator so that, Guys who grow up not having exposure to hunting, Boy Scouts of America, whatever it is, or a dad who taught them that stuff, they got to learn it from an iPad, you know, and a sergeant who's who's instructing them on this or whoever would be teaching the course. You know, that's it's, so it's in that you know it's a it's almost a testament or a, like an illustrated point of where our society is going in the first place, yeah. Yeah. which is the 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 fact that we're getting further away from our natural abilities in nature, yep. um, you know, to, to land navigate, yep. which, it, would you, which is a basic skill Survival, set man. for a human being. It yeah, should be, absolutely. but now you look at it and you're like, Oh, that's just a military application. Right. Like to be able to walk through the wood line on a, in a, on a compass is only for the infantry. And even in the military, yep. soft skilled MOSs or jobs in the yep. military, they don't loot. They don't use that. Right. They don't teach them that they might have a basic, like one day, three Here's hour block. Right. But you're expected to know that in the infantry and special forces. But then you think about it in life. Right. You should be expected to know that as a human being. Right. And, and especially as a man. And so a lot of the things that we're doing, we're losing 
our abilities to function in nature right. and becoming more compartmentalized in structures and buildings and urban areas. Yep. And it's, it's scary. Yep. And, you know, we, one of the things that we discussed too is, uh, you know, this whole concept that you had, um, that really, when you looked at my company, you realized that, Hey, you were doing the same exact thing. Yeah. yeah. Just on, just parallel of each other. Right. And tell us a little bit about that idea. Yeah, so that, that idea was, uh, it was a brainchild of my brother. My brother and I, it was called Project Shepherd. And it was basically... I got it licensed, so don't think about stealing that. That's shit. right, that's right. <laughs> and when I discovered uh, Fieldcraft, I immediately recognized it as a very similar um, uh, push and an effort and a passion toward educating people with basic life skills that help them become more confident, more capable, not just in the wild, but in their everyday life. Um, I'm too busy, and so this one gets to be yours, Mike. We're gonna, we're just gonna, and I'll take we're it. gonna push it. But basically, what what it amounted to is um, we wanted to teach uh, via YouTube and you know an online presence and even classes, and the things that we couldn't teach people, we would bring in the specialists. And um, you know, some of the things that you and I have talked about is just you know there are things like you ask a, if you asked a group of men, how many of you guys could sit down at a sewing machine and actually sew. Uh, even even hemming your pants. Could you hem a pair of pants? And in my opinion, a man should know how to do that. He shouldn't have to rely on his wife, his girlfriend, his sister, his grandma to do that for him. He should be able, to, in a basic way, to sit down at a sewing machine, thread a bobbin, and sew, you know, hem up his pants. Yep. Sew on a button. And um, it'd be interesting to just survey, like, one of your classes. How many of you guys know how to sew? I'm going to do that today on social media. There you go. How yeah. many of you guys know how to sew? How many men know how to sew? Right. I mean, you, I know you guys in, in SF, uh, my buddies that are SEALs, and in that community, a lot of those guys can do it. Yeah. They we modify gear all the kit. time. We modify kit all yep. the time. All the time. We typically deploy with sewing machines. It's there you go. crazy. Yeah. yeah. So you got to know how to do that. Um, other things like preserving your food. You know, we're so used to running to Walmart as Americans how many of us could actually preserve our fruits, our vegetables? How many of us are even growing a, even a small garden in your apartment? Because you can do it. Yeah, who knows how to grow? Nobody knows how to grow right. anything. Right. So Walmart goes weed. down. If you ask people how many people know how to grow weed, you get a whole, oh, a whole ton of them. treasure trove of right. you know, one of the One of the things that was um, life-changing to me was when we lived in Seattle, we'd get these snowstorms that would shut down the city. And I'm telling you, I've lived through hurricanes, tornadoes earthquakes and fires, fires in Southern California, and people lose it. Three days, people are losing their minds. Yeah. Running water, basic necessities. I mean, we saw it this last year with Hurricane Harvey and some of the other tragedies that happened. Tragedies that happened. So basically, that's what Project Shepherd was. It was just... Education. Um, how do you educate people to be more capable? And then when I saw Fieldcraft, I was like, right on. That's exactly what we're I'm, I'm excited about this whole project because, you know, this leads into what we're, we're transitioning into, which is mm-hmm. uh, we're not detaching from tactical space, but we're, we're taking ourselves out of it to get back to the roots of survival yeah. mindset and these things that develop these uh, self-reliant char- characteristics in human beings, period. Right. Uh, we're doing an overland trip when we leave here back to Colorado yep. where we'll be documenting a lot of things which will be the kickoff to our YouTube channel and some other things that we're going to be doing are videos on how do you preserve food? Yeah. You know, uh, how do you sew? Yeah. Uh, how do you improvise in situations where there's catastrophes? Yep. And you know, 
I I like social media as far as the the ability to educate, but you're limited on Instagram and what you can get across. Yeah. You know, you got a one minute window. Yep. You got a picture. You got content and a couple hundred characters. But I like the fact of doing the video, um, and and doing these things that you know the Project Shepherd thing, yep. transitioning into uh, the modern survival era where people you know they get bogged down by an inch of ice on the highway and they shut down, That's willing. It. To sacrifice their lives. They're like, yeah. I give up. Yeah. Like, I don't know what else to do. I'm just done. Yeah, we literally in Seattle would see the freeway turn into a parking lot. And anybody that's lived in Seattle during the wintertime knows what I'm talking about. People don't know what to do. Um, and then they block the freeway. They literally abandon their vehicles on the freeway and try and walk home. And one of my buddies spent eight hours on the 520 bridge one night during a snowstorm. Because people ahead of them on the bridge just parked. And everybody behind them got stuck. So you think about it. If this was a bad situation, you got a baby that needs medical attention. You got a baby that needs to be fed. You, uh, you need basic necessities. And now you're stuck on a bus, on a bridge in Seattle for eight hours. People are going to lose it. I can't, I'm excited for the simple fact of the, 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 the educational process for me is going to be interesting and fun. Yep. But the fact that People, when they are better prepared, are confident in the in a deliberate mechanism yep. to take steps necessary in those catastrophes and confidence. That's right. You're sitting your ass in a car and the highway gets shut down. You should know exactly what to source and reference. Yep. It should be, babe, grab the go bag. Yep. All right, grab the kids, grab the extra blankets. Right. We're going, pull out the compass, yep. pull out, you know, you're not gonna have the, the cell phone infrastructure that you're gonna have. When things, when everything's good, yep. But you should know exactly what to do in those situations because all it requires is a conversation, a little bit of training, and a little bit of equipment. Right. You know, we talk about the concept of everyday mobility, which is which is really what we're doing with the vehicle right now with your wrap. Right. Is prepping it for everyday mobility and highlighting it as a feature that your vehicle, which you which most people spend hours a day in, uh, which most people have at their disposal all the time, yep. um, you should turn it into a, a, a facilitation mm-hmm. of, of uh, you know, surviving a catastrophe. Right. And a lot of people don't think that way anymore. No, I, you know, they, as a culture, again, in Seattle, there are a lot of folks who are not into hunting, are not into necessarily survival, and they're used to going to the market, the local market, every day. So it's a normal thing for them to, on their way home from work, stop by the market, grab dinner, prepare the meal, and they do it again the next day. Well, when that market's shut down, you're stuck. What's your stockpile? So, what do you have on yeah. hand? Yeah. So when we talk survival, I think often there is a, there's a demographic. People assume that all of survivalists are gun guys, gun gals. Gun um, nuts. Gun nuts, if you yeah. will. I, I completely disagree. Even if you're, if you're a vegan, for example, and that is your lifestyle, I absolutely believe you have to be prepared. Yeah. You have to be. Because if your resources are now you know, changed or even shut down, you got to adapt. Yeah. So that's what I love about what you guys are doing with, with Fieldcraft is I think that everybody, regardless of your walk of life, should have that basic set of skills that you guys teach. That's awesome, man. Well, that's so, a good way to end the podcast. It's awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I, I want to highlight some of the some of you guys' or um, your company's information because, you know, we this is a base for education, this podcast. 
But if people want to dig a little bit deeper, yep. see what your patterns are about, see how to get involved, yeah. uh, even network, because I know a lot of business guys listen to this, yep. uh, you, you, they can go to your website, which is uh, www.relvcamo.com, and it's R-E-L-V-Camo.com, correct? You got it, yep. Yep, and then uh, on social media, on Instagram, it's relvcamo. Yeah, at relvcamo on Instagram. Yep. Uh, we're on Facebook as well. Um, and so then yeah. uh, your email, I could put out your email, right? Uh, put out info. Okay, so it's info at relvcamo.com. Yep. Yep. So if you guys got any questions for Kurt on you know any of the subject matter that we talked about today, uh, feel free to hit him up. Uh, he's yep. a treasure trove of uh, good information, especially in that realm of, of camouflage and really the future of it. I think you're literally the future of that of, of camouflage. Yeah, and, I you appreciate know, what, that. It's a compliment. Well, whatever we could do at Philcraft um, to help you uh, in, in any way utilizing our network, because our network is – a whole bunch of dudes in camouflage. <laughs> they love it. Um, then we, we'll do whatever we can, man. Appreciate I, that. I, I appreciate having you on. Yeah, thanks. Okay, guys. Um, you know, if you guys are tuning in this podcast, uh, we just the, our last podcast was was with uh, Elizabeth. She's a uh, a social slash counselor uh, at Veteran Affairs. And uh, if you haven't listened to that podcast, make sure you tune into that podcast because it's a really good podcast podcast on PTSD and a whole bunch of things of awareness for people. That if you don't suffer from PTSD um, and you're just somebody who's involved or has somebody who has PTSD, you can get better educated through that podcast. So moving forward, you know, we're transitioning from PhilCraftSurvival.com. I'm actually dropping PhilCraftSurvival.us. Um, PhilCraftSurvival.us will be a placeholder um, for the website as we transition websites. We're actually rebuilding our website, PhilCraftSurvival.com. So all orders can be placed on PhilCraftSurvival.us. And I'll post that on social media so you guys know uh, how to do that. Um, so in the meantime, go to .com, but I'll post when .us is available. You know, as always, this podcast has no commercials because uh, we don't take any money for this podcast. Uh, what we have done is we set up on um, Venmo, we've actually set up PhilCraft, uh, at PhilCraft, that you could donate any amount of money that you want to keep this podcast on the air. You know, we, we try to knock one out at least once, one, once a week. Um, but you know, the, the better the opportunity, um, you know, like this one where we're worth Kurt, we're going to do one with Travis tomorrow. Um, then we'll, then we'll knock them out. If you guys want to donate, feel free at Venmo. Um, again, it's at Philcraft. Um, and you guys can always hit us up on our social media. It's Philcraft survival. Kurt's is Kurt underscore team Philcraft. Um, and then the whole suite of a whole bunch of brand, great brand ambassadors who represent our company. I uh, appreciate the time, guys. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.